I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I am, as always, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J, and with me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. You know, I was one of my breaks today. I was I was walking to the uh, front break room because it's the only one that's got Pop Tarts and Coke. And I was thinking that I should just make a T-shirt that says "The Great White Snark." That could work. <laughs> All right. Well, I was also thinking about Jeff today, so thinking about how he gave me the uh, the nickname "The Great White Snark." Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I I just saw his uh, widow not too long ago. How's she doing? She's doing good. Asked how uh, Logan, his son, was doing, and they're they're both doing pretty good. So you know, yeah, kind of. It was funny. Was I got in the car and you know, mom was asking me why I you know she was like, "Who's dad?" I'm like, "Well, that's Jeff's widow, mom." It's like. Why don't Does you try? have a name? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying, Kimmy. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say it's like, and she's like, so why don't you try for her? I'm like, I'm not gonna do it, mom. That's that's Jeff's wife. Granted, Jeff's been dead almost a year, but I I can't. It, it's respect thing, mom. I I don't go jumping on my buddy's woman after they die. And what if she doesn't want to? Also, slash right. You know, I, I've never, I've never brought it up to her because I, Please. I don't, because the, not too long after, I mean, the minute I heard Jeff, Jeff died, I heard in my head, don't go for my wife, Scott, don't go for my wife. Yeah, see, so he's like telling you from the great beyond to. He was. And, and, back off. <laughs> and as I, as I said, it's a respect thing, you know, I'm not going to do it. Jeff's my friend. Jeff was my brother. Ain't going to do it. It's a respect thing. I don't care how long you're in the ground. It's a respect thing. Now, if it was Phil's, <laughs> Phil would have been, you know, Phil would have been on her at the fucking at the uh, at at the. I mean, if the it was funeral. Phil that had, you know, like died and all that, be different. Depending on how she looked, because there, okay. was, there was one night, one day, I went to pick Phil up for um, for recording, and he sent somebody on the walk of shame. Yeah. And and I was like, dude, I could give her a ride. He's like, nah, let her walk. Wow. Yeah. I just, she had like a little Hello Kitty backpack on and, you know, just walking down the street with a smile on her face. I'm like, dude, I, no, man. And this was like in the summer. So I'm like, dude, no, nah, man, that's wrong. At least give, at least let's give her a ride. No, nah, man, she could walk. Okay. Like j- j- just you're just a shining paragon of chivalry there. Mm-hmm. Okay, folks, um, we're doing a redo because uh, it was brought to our well, it was brought to my attention through Monica. 
through her mom that on Leopold and Lowe Part One, we couldn't hear say, Monica. Not quite as embarrassing. I was going to just say that a listener, not to have to say who, but yeah, God, okay. Right. Well, you know, this is kind of. Now that's Al. So. That we, um, Monica could not be heard at all in the podcast. So it, it's me and, you know, if I had learned ventriloquism at that episode, it would. And like, and your response was, and what's the problem? Man, it was just a rough, rough week, man. It was just dealing with the old man and new things at work, learning new accounts at work, and then trying to get the, you know, I've got, was this is week eight, so I actually have like three weeks left to the semester, and in two weeks, I got to write my big three 3,000 word paper. Oh, thank you. Yep, done. <laughs> done for 17 years. Um. I'm just going to show you. This is just the articles for the paper. No, thank you. Ugh. Like we were talking about before. Yeah. No. Or, uh, hey, I'm, you know, I wanted to be a historian. So I got to. Yeah. Whenever I saw is, those blue books come out in college, I was always like, oh, God. Oh, oh God. Those, those uh, little uh, composition books. Yep. I had a. I had a. Family and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the it, it was family and something. It, it was a family class that I took and and Doctor B was her name, and she'd break those things out for every test. And I mean, she was like, "What's the quantitative and quanta quantitative?" And I'm like, "Huh." Yeah, I'd see that and I'd be like, "Well, I'm gonna have no feeling." In my hand for the rest of the day now. So uh, I, I was hoping that the, uh, the the teacher from Tennessee was going to teach this course. We we could have talked about Appalachian families, how the family tree don't fork. But yeah, that's what was kind of nice with my master's being online. Well, mine's online too. I still got to well, do the writing. Yeah, I mean it was. But yours, like, school's local, though, right? No, Vermont. Vermont? Oh, I thought it was, like... No, no, no. I'm in uh, Norwich University up in Vermont. Oh. Which sucks because last year was the last year they did the week residency. Oh, uh, yeah, so... So this year I don't get to go up to the campus for a job fair and graduation in June. Oh. Well, they don't have, you have, like, go for graduation. You could still... I think you'd still be able to go for... Yeah, graduation is like the end of April. But yeah, but still, like, <laughs> I mean, you could still go, right? It's not like uh, I. I mean, technically, to, you could go, right? Technically, I, mean, I could go. I, I opted okay, not yeah. to. Uh huh. Yeah. Because I'll probably be working on my my capstone paper. So yeah. Well, you know, like I had to fly out to Phoenix for my graduation. Yeah, go loops. <laughs> You're right. So we are going to get back to. Yeah, so we are going to uh, redo Leopold and Loeb part one for you guys. And I'll take a listen this time and if to see how uh, how it turns out. If it does, and we'll like. Right. Probably hear me like, like, what? I'm like, well, I, I, like, I don't know what's going with the mic, but she's right. like, the second one was better, so whatever. Right. 
Yeah, and I just put part three out earlier before we started recording. So did you listen to that one? <laughs> yeah, I did. You actually everything sounded good on that one. Okay, fine, cool. Okay, all, all right. right. Let's see if I can say this name again. Nathan Frudenthal Leopold Jr. was born on November 19th, 1904. He was born into a German-Jewish family who had immigrated over to America in the 1890s. He was the third and last child of his parents, having two older brothers. His father was a millionaire who owned the Morris Paper Company and the Fiber Can Corporation. After his birth... His mother's health began to decline, and his relationship with his father was strained to begin with. It might be, like, you caused your mother to be sick after you was born. Oh, wait, why did I make him sound Southern? It's because I can't do a German accent. Yeah, like, like, and you at least could try for it. Yeah. The Illinois accent and... Been like, well, you know, he lost the, the German, so. Well, I see. I don't know. It depends on how long he was here. I was just being facetious. Ooh, see that? She's using them big words. I'm too yep. dumb for them big words. <laughs> uh, da, da. Okay, Nathan and his brothers were raised by a series of nannies and governesses, as you do if you've got the money to do it. Nathan was a prodigy, many believing he said his first words were at four months old. He liked to steal things, just to prove he could do it. Now, because of his intelligence, he was seen as a strange child and had few friends. He developed an interest in birds and learned the art of taxidermy to show off his growing collection of birds. This is something that strikes me. I wonder what happened to that collection of birds after... Oh, yeah, that's something I would yeah be wondering about too. I you know I I almost um I know you haven't been to Chicago, but uh, or we, actually, but right. I flew it over. Like, right, we're the flyover. <laughs> next, yeah. next flyover, I'll stand out in the yard and wave and see if you can see me. Yeah, but um, the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, beautiful building, great collections. I often wonder if his birds ended up in their collection. Wouldn't be surprised either. And then, you know, like conveniently lost the information right. about where they came from. Because you you remember the movie with uh, Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer, The Ghost in the Darkness? The, yeah, I never saw it, but yeah, yeah. Okay, the, it was about the Lions of Savo, two man-eaters who were eating... Uh, okay, yeah, I mean, I didn't, again, didn't see it, but... Well, those lions are on display at the field. Okay. And I mean, well, Libre- at the Libria Tar Pits, the Field Museum is also mentioned on the sign because I sent you the picture. Yeah. On there. But anyway. Okay. But um, no, I, I would not doubt that some of his birds, especially some of the, the local birds of Illinois, ended up in their collection just so that the family could get rid of them. Yeah. But. Not in the trash, but right, cause it was kind of like with John Dupont too. The same thing. Like, well, before his um, yeah, a lot of them like were down in Delaware. Like, museum actually started with his collection. But I'll you know do some further work on that. But because Leopold had like two thousand birds in his collection. Yeah. So. 
you know, maybe they ended up at the field. Next time I go, I'll ask. Yeah, because it would seem like a waste just to. Right. And and I'm pretty sure if I ask, I'll get the. Awesome. Well, well, I don't know. They came from a private collection. Yeah, well, the murderer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. Now, he developed an interest in birds and learned our taxidermy show off his collection. Father gave him a gun, which he shot his birds with. One day, he tried to shoot a bird when he almost hit a servant. Now, when he was confronted, he said, eh, why should I give a damn? Nathan was small for his age. At the age of six, he attended Mrs. Spady's school in 1910. Eh, this was pretty much a girl's school and was transferred a year later to the Douglas Public School. Uh, one S, so I'm pretty sure it was named after uh, Stephen A. Douglas. Frederick had two S's. It wasn't another Lincoln Public School number 5,200. <laughs> Not in Chicago. Okay. Because uh, Stephen Douglas is actually buried in Chicago. Oh, so. But I, I I remember this because um, Douglas did have two S's, but he wanted to distance himself from Frederick. So Stephen took a, an S off of his name. Yeah. But he stood out because of his size and how he viewed others. He was also not allowed to associate with the Negroes and tough kids and was sent back to Miss Spades at the age of eight. Since he was smarter than the other students, he got to skip a grade. 1910 brought another change into Nathan's life. His father hired a new governess named Matilda Watts. Now, Matilda only spoke German, and since this was a language that Nathan knew, he tutored her in English. Now, Matilda was suspicious and a jealous woman, as most of them are, often talking about other servants than Nathan and her bro- and his brother Sam. She was doing this to drive a wedge between the boys and the servants, as well as the family, often playing to Nathan's feelings of insecurity and alienation. Matilda also began to sexually abuse the boys. She would often invite them into her bath and flaunt her naked body in front of them, inviting the boys to look and touch her breasts and nipples. Often, she would wrestle naked with the boys. Slowly, she began to lie in bed with them, with Matilda lying face down and the boys rubbing their genitals between her legs. You know, you you have no idea how much this image comes into my head at work as I try to figure out what in the hell they were doing. I got nothing against. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing, folks. You can see the screen. She was just sitting here looking real real close for a moment. It's like, I got nothing. Yeah. What, What you do at work is what you do at work. Like I said, they stick me in a corner and leave me alone. Now, this would continue until Nathan was 12. One day, their mother came in to see them and found Matilda treating the boys rough. She was then fired on the spot. After this incident, Nathan discovered he was sexually attracted to men. It it probably all depended on what Matilda looked like, too. Yeah, (laughs) because... She's probably one of the big, big German um, brows. Yeah, that went you know. Pretty much the other way than I guess she was expecting. 
They're right. No. In 1915, the family moved to the Kentwood neighborhood and Nathan attended the Harvard School. Because of his intelligence, he once again skipped several grades. Nathan never fit in at school, often treating others as inferiors and having a superior attitude. 1916 saw Nathan attending a summer camp where he developed an attraction to a counselor. While there, he met a boy named Henry who taught Nathan how to masturbate. At first, it was Nathan watching Henry, then Nathan joining it. The two formed a secret club to do that. I can't say it a second time. Sorry. Oh. They, yeah, I was like, reduce. So, anyway. They invited a young boy named Joe to join. This allowed Nathan to indulge in fantasies he had where he could tie Joe up and find, masturbate him against his will and other sadistic ideas. Nathan had found people to share his interests in. In 1920, he graduated from the Harvard School. He had gone out with some friends and picked up a girl. Nathan attempted to have sex with her, but he couldn't perform. He swore everyone to secrecy. And part of the reason is now I'm having an allergy attack. Final day, now I'm having an allergy attack. Well, isn't it something that in most cases, if someone was abused and then they become an abuser? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they were here with uh, little Nate. Yeah. On June 11th, 1905, Richard Albert Loeb was born. His parents were also German-Jewish immigrants, and he was the third child in the family. Nathan believed that his parents didn't care for him and felt they favored his older brothers. In 1910, the family hired a new governess, Anna Struthers, to watch over Richard. Anna quickly moved to become the dominant influence in young Richard's life. And it pushed Richard to achieve more than other boys and would be upset if he didn't live up to her expectations. Richard quickly learned how to please and be appeasing to older people. As well as this, he learned how to lie very well. Struthers chose the books Richard read, believing books should educate as well as entertain. Richard slowly began to steal his brother's detective magazines, harboring fantasies about being a gentleman thief. Much like Cary Grant. I had to keep that joke in there. Sorry, Scott. (laughs) No, that's not a problem. Slowly, he began to commit petty thefts. By the age of 12, he had entered the University of Chicago High School. Richard had a difficult time adjusting since he was younger than his fellow students. Once he settled in, he began to make friends and join in different clubs. And it pushed him to finish high school in two years. Richard's parents agreed to send him on a trip to Europe if he accomplished this. He did, but his parents did not hold up their end of the bargain. In 1920, at the age of 14, he entered the University of Chicago. Since he was in college, his parents felt that he did not need a governess, so they fired Anna. Oh, well, that worked against her. All that worked to get him all smart and everything and worked herself right out of a job. Right. So. It was here that he met Nathan Leopold. Keep your kids dumb, folks. Or, you know, if you got a governess, make sure she doesn't push him too hard. You don't want him to be... Well, no, it's the governess that you don't push your kids too hard because then you'll be out of a job. The parents, so then they don't have to pay for governess. (laughs) Right. In 1921, the boys took a train ride to the Loeb Farm in Charlevoix, Michigan. I hope I'm saying that right. 
It's one of them French names, you know. I'm lucky I get Pepe Le Pew right. Now, on that ride, they began to share their secrets with each other, realizing they had a lot in common. On that train ride, the boys shared more than their secrets. They began to share their bed with each other. By the spring of 21, the boys were cheating at cards, enjoyed riding in stolen cars, and throwing bricks at passing cars. In one case, they interrupted a couple having sex in their car, and in another case, they had broken the window of a shop, only to get shot at by the police as they left. If only they had hit. That summer, the boys were back in Michigan. Work had been done on the house, and one of the workers had been a classmate of the boys. That night, they all slept on an open porch. Loeb had gotten up to get something to drink, then crawled into bed with Leopold. The friend caught them and threatened to expose their secret. The boys attempted to drown their friend, only to find out he could swim. You should That should have been the first question you asked before you go to the lake. Hey, you know how to swim? Oh, you do? Oh, shit. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll enjoy a, a nice boating trip on the lake. Now, the worker confronted Loeb's older brother, but the boys lied and he took their side. The worker was fired and went back to the University of Chicago and began to spread rumors about Leopold and Loeb being lovers. That autumn, Loeb transferred to the University of Michigan, but Leopold, like a teenage girl, could not stand to be away from him, so he tagged along. They rented an apartment in Ann Arbor. Richard had received a message that his mother was dying and he rushed back to be with her. Now, she had died of nephritis, nephritis, I hope I'm saying that right, that she had contracted after his birth. When Nathan went back to Ann Arbor, things had changed between the two. Now, Richard could fit in and make friends while Nathan still had problems fitting in and treating others as inferiors. Richard had pledged to a fraternity, but to be accepted, they told him to stop hanging around Nathan. So he sent Nathan packing, and Nathan went back to Chicago. While Richard could still fit in, he tried to keep up with his fraternity brothers, but being 16 made it hard, especially when it came to drinking. Now, Nathan went back to the familiar surroundings and the University of Chicago. During this time, he began to read the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, almost to the point of obsession. Nathan believed in Nietzsche's concept of a superman, which I should have typed in the German version. It was Ubermach. Yeah, I think it was Ubermach. And believed himself and Richard were these people. Now, while they're away, Nathan still longed for Richard, often writing poetry and you know composing songs. Oh, Richard, how I love you. The lights glinting off of Lake Michigan in your eye. Oh, I wonder if Navy Pier was up at that point. They could have rode the Ferris wheel. Now, Nathan was often placed him in a higher position than himself in his fantasies. Kind of like a master-slave type thing he had going on there. In 1923, both had graduated college. Once back in Chicago from Michigan, because there was really nothing for them to do, they started hanging out again, 
out of boredom. But because of the differences between the two, they started to argue. Nathan felt excluded from the world Richard inhabited since people were more inclined to hang out with Richard because he wasn't creepy. To make Nathan happy, Richard gave in to his demands and they hung out. On a chilly night in 1923, the boys drove to Ann Arbor to rob the fraternity house Richard belonged to. For Nathan, this was revenge for the fraternity making Richard choose them over him. For Richard, this was probably another round of doing something Nathan wanted to do to shut him up. By the time they arrived, it was three in the morning. They managed to break in and steal a portable typewriter, some money, and a few watches. Nathan wanted to rob another house. Richard wanted to head back to Chicago. Richard gave in, and they went to another house. As they were stealing a camera, Richard heard someone snore and got scared and left. This caused Nathan to get mad. On the way home, the two had another argument, one that almost ended their friendship. Nathan feared that with all the information Richard had on him, he could be reported to the police. Nathan proposed a deal. Richard had to accompany him on any crime he wanted to commit, but could back out if he felt it was too dangerous. And he could have sex with Richard three times every two months. Nathan had felt that Richard was holding back from having sex with him. Nathan proposed one more idea to seal the deal. They had to kidnap someone for ransom. Richard gave in, most likely to shut Nathan up. They drove back to Chicago, content in their agreement. How many guys have actually been in this situation where they just did something to shut their woman up? Or their friend, not the woman free? Right. I, I mean, I've been in situations with women I've dated where they want to meet, where I really didn't want... Ex-wife comes to mind going to dinner with her parents. I really didn't want to go. But I went anyway just to shut her up. It's Billy's end in murder, so. No. No, but those are hours I cannot get back. That's true. I'm sure. Time. I'm sure that when I die, there's going to be someone, you know, they're going to be replaying moments of my life. Uh There's going to be someone going. And you lost an hour here, and you lost uh-huh. an hour here. Well, you lost a couple hours watching this movie. You really didn't want to, but you did anyway. Yeah. Some stupid rom-com. I think it was one with Ashton Kutcher and um, Amanda Peet. I don't remember the name of it, but that was like an hour and a half I can't get back. Yeah, pretty much anything with him is an hour yeah. and a half to get back. <laughs> right. Now, in March 1924, the partnership almost broke up again. They brought Yoko Ono into the situation, and she started screeching. Burn. <laughs> I'm just remembering a, a, a video I saw of, who was it? John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and someone else. I'm trying to remember who it was. No, Chuck Berry. I think they were playing on the Mike Douglas show or something. And then when Yoko started singing, Chuck gave this look like, what in the hell is wrong with this woman? Try and find that on YouTube. I'd love to see that. Uh, right. Now, Nathan was complaining that no real plans had been made to kidnap someone. Richard was holding out, hoping Nathan would give up this ridiculous idea. So to make him happy, Richard began making plans for the kidnapping. At one point, Nathan mentioned kidnapping and raping a girl. 
but Richard shot this idea down. Now it was decided that they needed to kidnap someone from the neighborhood since it was easier to get someone in the car that knew them. The timeline was placed and the kidnapping had to be done by June 11th when Nathan was set to take a trip to Europe. During the month of April, the plans were created. Now, no one's not sure when murder first entered it. I mean, Nathan did say he wanted to kidnap and rape a girl, but somehow murder got into the plan. But it was agreed upon to prevent further, you know, prevent the uh, prevent them from being identified. The boys decided to use a rental car since both of theirs were known and. I want to say Nathan's car was being worked on at the time. He, he had a brake issue, and, and the chauffeur was working on the working on the car. They went downtown to a rental place and used a fake name to get the car. This allowed them to easily get the car for the day of the crime. They chose the spot to dump the body at Wolf Lake because Nathan had gone there to watch birds. And and he he knew the area, so like with all you know, with all criminals, when they go to dump body, it's a familiar location. Nathan had found a culvert that would be used to hide the body. They worked out the details of where to leave the notes, which drugstore to use, and what train to take to drop off the money. They they uh, weighed like tried different packages and of different weights to you know chuck off the back of the train to see if they could you know how far it would travel and was that part was pretty smart though oh yeah i mean well this, this is back in the day when you can pay like a nickel for a train ride you know mm-hmm. so they could pretty much do it as many times as they wanted to right and and that's what they did they they um i think it was a train going to michigan and they knew the line and they um they knew the line so that you know you could walk back to the um back to the to um trying to remember the name the caboose you could walk out to the door of the caboose and then you know shut you know chuck the um package off well this one you know this one didn't go as far so let let's try a different way catch the train back take another route you know they were, I have to say, they were very detailed in their planning. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, that part, I guess, it's like, you want to say, like, oh, that was really smart of them, but then, like, with what they were doing, it's like, right. you don't want to say it, but it was. And, and it was. actually, how many people, how many people actually go to this much preparation for their plans? Exactly. It was like, Totally legit legal planning for whatever. Yeah. Right. Because most times it's like, okay, we're going to run in here. We're, we're going to kidnap this. Yeah, like, and I know we'll talk about it when I do it, but like when Booth tried to, you know, Booth's plan to kidnap Lincoln. Mm-hmm. It was, well, we're going to do it in front of, you know, we're going to do it at Ford's Theater. Booth knew the layout. He thought that they were just going to be able to walk up to the booth and, get Lincoln and tie him up and escort him. It's like, yeah, it'd be like, come on, we're going to go this way. And everybody else is just going to be like, right. See you, Abe. <laughs> See you later, Mr. President. Uh-huh. 
Now, on May 20th, the boys rented a, rented a car and went back to the Leopold house where Nathan grabbed the portable typewriter, some rope, a pair of rubber boots, a lap rug, and a bottle of ether and tape. At a hardware store, he bought a chisel. At another drugstore, they bought a bottle of hydrochloric acid. They went to the hotel and typed out the ransom note. The next day would be the day they put their plan into action. And that's where we're... <laughs> You're right. For tonight, because this is a redo. Anyway. Right. All right, folks. Yeah. If you're looking for us, Spotify, Podbean, Castbox, the Facebook page, join us there. And for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica.